Today, I had the opportunity to visit with Michael Berger. I've been stalking him for, for quite some time. He is uh, one of the co-founders of a private equity group, but it's not really a private equity group. You know, he has about 37 partners that they have this fund and they're buying small businesses. The The guys that are underserved, they, they aren't on the radar, the big private equity groups, but they're just good businesses. And business owners that are looking to retire, he and his team, they're looking for, for, for deals like this and they're different types of deals. Um, and so it's a real interesting group. And I was so stoked when uh, he agreed to come on and, and talk about, you know, just the things that they're doing because they are doing real special things in this underserved market. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Michael Berger. Please welcome, please welcome, welcome. This is another episode of the Defenders of Business Value podcast, a podcast where we talk about what makes a business valuable, learn the tips and tactics to increase your company's value that only veteran dealmakers know. And now here's your host, Ed Misogland. I'm your host, Ed Misogland. I teach business owners how to identify and remove risks in their business so that one day they can sell their business at maximum value when they want, how they want, and to whom they want. On today's show, I am so stoked to uh, welcome Michael Berger of Little Engine Ventures. I've been I've been stalking these guys for quite some time, and I'm just so looking forward to talking with them because they're not your average private equity group. They're doing things in the in the underserved space, so I'm really stoked about that. So let me tell you a little bit about Michael. Michael he he likes software, co working, and being a small business owner. He's the founding partner of Little Engine Ventures, a partnership of business owners buying small businesses from retiring business owners in central Indiana. Little Engine has completed 12 acquisitions in three years. Michael is also the co-founder of a software development firm, Delmar, and the co-working studio, Matchbox. And he has a couple degrees from Purdue University. So welcome to the show, Michael. Ed, thanks for having me on, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. Like I said, I'm stoked to have you. So you heard the, the intro. Color a little bit more about what Little Engine is about and about you. Yeah, yeah, sure. Maybe I'll start a little bit on me. I don't want to bore folks too much, but I think the the my story a little bit as one of the the founding partners of Little Engine definitely leads to the the kind of the profile um, that we have. Daryl Starr is my co-founding partner with Little Engine, and his story obviously has a huge in, influence uh, on what we're doing uh, as well. But yeah, so I describe myself as a reluctant entrepreneur or uh, an accidental business owner coming out of Purdue University with a software development degree. This was right after the dot-com bubble had burst 15, 16 years ago. And there just weren't any jobs that I thought sounded interesting and a good fit for me. And, and was uh, this professor that I'd worked with, Kyle Lutz, we got to talk in and he kind of came into academia a weird way. And one of the few folks at Purdue to get tenure without a PhD. And we were talking about how we thought software should be written and, and said, well, why don't we just do it that way? And do you have to sort of have a business to be able to get paid to write software for people? So we started this little company called Delmar Software Development and um, slowly grew it up over time, writing software the way we thought um, it should be written. And so I built a company just because it's what I wanted. It was a place I wanted to work, right? And somewhere along there, about five or six years ago, helped a, a few other folks start a nonprofit co-working space up here in Lafayette. And because it was the place I wish had existed when I was starting Delmar before we could afford a, a real office. Nice. Um, 
I, I wish I had had a conference room. I would have told you at the time, I wish I had a conference room and a table and a chair with fast Wi-Fi. And <laughs> um, I was working out of my spare bedroom and coffee shops and, and all those kind of things. And I wouldn't have told you at the time, but I know now what I really needed is I needed a community of entrepreneurs around me, other people that weren't going to a regular nine to five job, but were trying to, you know, get something started working an independent contractor or, um, doing a new startup or, yeah. or whatever they were doing. That, that was really the valuable thing that again, I wish I had had. And so little engine is kind of falls in that same way. Little engine is the, the option when I didn't have a, when I wanted to sell my business, that there didn't seem like there was a good option for the size or type of business that I had, that I had created in Del Mar. So I made changes at Del Mar where everything used to run through me, the, the whole business, because I love doing a little bit of everything, right? right. Um, you've seen this, I'm sure a lot, of, a lot of the listeners have as well, right? So, so the, I was the limiting factor on that business. That's what you've got to do in the early days because sure. there's nobody else to do the stuff. So you got to get it, got to get it up and get it working. But at some point you, you become the, what's holding everything back. And so life went from a lot of fun to not very much fun at all. And I was like, I got to sell this business, but like, who's going to buy this little professional services firm and there's not enough revenue and everything runs through me. And if I quit, like it's not going to be, you right. know, yeah. well, the whole thing's going to fall apart. So say I went into, went into the office every day for about three years and I was going to work myself out of a job. So I stopped writing code for small projects. I stopped working on writing code for big projects. I, I stopped managing small projects and, you know, kind of worked my way out of a job until one day I was like, Oh, there's nothing for me to do here. I guess I can sell it now. And then I looked at my business and I'm like, wait, why would I sell this thing? I really like it. I, I get to work on the things that I want to work on. Other people are enjoying the jobs more because I've given them more autonomy and more, uh, and more freedom. Hold on. I don't have to sell this thing. Now I could, but I don't have to. And I think that's as a small business owner, that's a really good yeah, place to, to be in. Sure. But then at some point you, you, you know, you do want to move on to, to other things. So I think I just got to that point in my career at whatever I was 35 or so at the time there, I just got to that point a little earlier because I frankly started earlier than what some other business owners do. So the folks we deal with now at little engine, is not exclusively, but our, our kind of target market, we're trying to serve folks that have a small business with kind of one to $10 million in revenue. They're getting ready to retire where we kind of say, move on to their next adventure. Right. Cause right. small business owners don't, they don't retire on their 65th birthday and then just go sit on the beach and play golf and stuff like that. They, they, they're going to keep busy, but they might be volunteering with a nonprofit, might be spending more time with their grandkids. They might have a couple of businesses and their time to, it's just time to focus on, on one. Right. So, right. uh, yeah, so it's the thing I wish had existed and well, we're I, trying to build that. Yeah. Well, I'm telling you, and, and that that's what I was saying in the introduction. I mean, this it is such a, an abnormal type private equity group. As far as my exposure, I, I haven't bumped into anybody that, that that's like you. And yeah. like we were talking in the, before we hit record, I mean, you, you guys seem to have an appetite for considerable risk that, that private equity groups aren't necessarily known for. So can, can you explain yeah. how your model works and, and, and why it works better yeah. yet? Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're three years in, so it's still a little bit to be determined if it's, uh, if it totally works, but it seems to be working so far. So yeah, we, we are trying to buy from a private equity financial standpoint. I mean, typically we are private equity, uh, for branding reasons. I try to not use that term too much. We're, we're a group of business owners buying small businesses, right? So, but no, we are private equity, you know, SEC, reg D fund, all that kind of 
all that kind of good stuff. We're committed, we're a committed fund and we do take controlling interest in the business. So we look to buy 70 to, in most cases, we buy a hundred percent ownership of the business from that um, retiring owner operator. And we're trying to serve the market below where traditional private equity will go. So most private equity won't go below a business with less than a million of EBITDA. Now those guys are kind of considered the, the micro private equity space, right? Yeah. And that's right for right now. That's kind of our, our upper bound there. So we're trying to serve that market that doesn't, doesn't have an option. So in most cases, if for the size business owner, it's, it's a little too small for a private equity group or even a strategic in the space to, to consider. And there's some very good reasons why they don't go down that size. We could talk about that, but there's also, it's a little too big for an employee to do a buyout. So I can vary a little bit with the type of business and, but you know, with sellers notes and things like that, but we tend to serve a, a business owner that's when they get to the point of being done, they're just ready to be done. And they know if they do a seller's note there, they're not totally out of the business, right? They, their, their future is still tied to the strength of that, that business for the, for the new owner to be able to pay off the note and those kinds of things. And so we try to provide that better, uh, more seamless transition for that kind of business that's in the middle, that middle ground there. We also tend to um, do well in businesses that are fairly light on tangible assets because it's hard to go to a bank um, to finance the, the purchase of that um, as well. So as a committed fund, we can come in and be mo- a mostly cash buyer of business and mostly are all cash buyer. We're, we're, we're very light users of debt at this point. It's about mitigating some of that risk. So. Sure. Well, it says, yeah, it's, it said that sure. on your website you have 37 partners. Now, are they all from different walks of yeah. life or are they participating in post-acquisition development? How, what, what do those partners do? Yeah, so the, the, our 37 uh, investment partners are, are technically limited partners. They've invested in the fund. They don't invest in any individual business. They don't get to pick and choose their favorites. Um, they trust me and Daryl to make the, the buy decisions on these and then to make the decisions for who's going to operate the business. So, um, they're, they are from a few different walks of life, but it all kind of centers around small business. And so that's what I've, I've come to enjoy. Like almost all of them have been, uh, or currently are still small business owners. I don't know. They range in age from, I think they've got a couple of folks in their early, early thirties that have had some early success in business, but most of them are, are a bit older and they're used to having a big chunk of their net worth in their own private business. And so they, they like owning small businesses. Almost all of them are from central Indiana, a few in central Illinois. There's a couple other folks smattered around, but they get, they get what we're doing. So I always say I, I would much rather explain what uh, management fees and carry are to a small business owner that's never invested in a fund then I uh, would try to explain how small business works to some quote, professional money manager. Like it's not fun. Yeah, I get you. <laughs> or maybe I'm just not good. <laughs> Got it. Well, so when you, when you look at your organization and, and, and comparing it to, to private equity, private equity, I mean, there's some rigid acquisition criteria. One of the things I like about your, your website, LEV BC. One of the things that I, that struck me was just the variety of, of businesses. And it, it, you know, normally you see, all right, I have a platform and I'm bolting on to it for, for, for synergy. But in your case, it just, is it by design or can you talk about how those businesses got on board? Yeah. So there is, 
from the outset, from the outside, it, it looks pretty diverse. I mean, we own everything from roll off dumpster business to beer and skydiving, right? right. Um, a couple of ag companies. Um, but if you look at them in different ways, there's a whole lot of similarities is what I, is what I like to say. There's financial metrics, you know, we're looking to buy businesses of a certain size of revenue, right? So if we bought a, you know, we wouldn't have the cash to do it, but if we, if we bought a business with 500 million in revenue, like those kinds of businesses just have different types of problems, right? Or they have different ways of solving even the same problems, but it's a made up stat, but my gut says like 80% of the problems in any business with 10 to 25, 50 employees are kind of the same and they're a function of the size of that business. So how you hire people, how you fire people, what kind of benefits you offer, even the type of person that wants to work for a small business versus work for the largest employer in the area, that just kind of different mentality of the types of folks that, that you attract. So if you know those things, there's actually a, a lot of similarities. Now, and there, there are like our model has to work with we say we want every seller um, that works with us to feel like they get a very customized experience. But on some things, honestly, Ed, it, it has to be fairly systematized. And that's what we're trying to do is build up the system so we can do a lot of them. So it's part of the reason that private equity won't go down into this side of the business is they spend too much on due diligence. So I can't bring in 18 lawyers and 37 accountants and, right. you know, look over, look over the books. Now we do our, we do do our due diligence, but we have to have that process fairly standardized. Like we, yeah. yeah, we had a deal that was going to close on a, on a Friday or no, it was going to close on a Monday. And on a Friday, the the deal fell through because their lawyer came back with like 90% of the contract document, like redlined. And we're just like, Whoa, I mean, we're willing to come a little bit, but we can't, you know, we just, we just can't spend, we can't spend a ton of lawyer time going all over all of your changes. If you really want all those changes, then now, most of them don't get that far. We get to, you know, we can figure that out, sort that out sooner, but it is, it's gotta be that kind of process. So we, we look for businesses, like I said, with kind of revenue, 30% plus gross margins or, you know, another one that if you, if you have that kind of gross margin, then you have the option to fund some growth out of that, right. Without additional capital or heavy use of debt. So there are just some of those kinds of things that both financially have to work, but also they just kind of tip towards the, the operational um, side of the business. Yeah. And, and that's um, funny. Thing, I think like, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say the, like we own a, we've done two roll off dumpsters and we've merged those together. So we do, I mean, we do do some, the 12 acquisitions that we've done in three years roughly correlates to about seven operating businesses. Um, and so then we've also done two auto glass companies and merged those together. But even those two companies, so four companies down to two, but even those two companies, there's a ton of similarities. Both those businesses are basically little logistics businesses because I either have to get a, a dumpster out to a job site and then to the dump and back, or I have to get a job tech out to a site, to another site, and then back for the day, right? So it's all about jobs per day. I mean, literally both businesses have, you know, a whiteboard up in the offices and, you know, like what's the rolling target for jobs per day? And, are we, are our salespeople, you know, targeting, um, in a geographic density so we can increase, you know, the number of jobs per day. We don't make money when the, when people are driving around, we make money when we do and doing work, good work for a customer. So you learn some lessons that go across businesses, even if the product that you're selling is for the service is a little bit different. Yeah. Well, I, I love that you say that we're early adopters and formulators of new combinations. 
that feels like your your old software days and that you're tinkering and and that in a business setting what what does that mean and because i'm i'm assuming you're you're looking at the landscape of the the operating expenses and you're trying to retool it as to you know where are the inefficiencies where are yeah. the opportunities so can you talk a little bit about that yeah, for sure. Now it's when people kind of like, well, what are you guys? Like, are you private equity? And like, yeah, kind of technically, but we're, you know, we're a little bit like a family office. Just we have 37 families. And the only thing we do for the families are in, in the investment businesses. We don't, you know, we don't take care of their vacations or whatever. Right. Like a family office might, but we're also like a little bit sprinkling some spice in there of a, of a venture fund. Right. So, Hey, okay. We're, we're willing to, you know, adopt some new technology and things like that now. Now, honestly, we're learning, we are learning to slow our role a little bit on that, um, <laughs> sure. get in the business and, and really learn it. Don't change things too fast. It freaks employees out. You sometimes don't know all the unintended consequences of changing some things. Right. So that adoption of new technology is like, Hey, we're going to use a CRM tool here instead of Excel, or we're going to use QuickBooks instead of a yellow legal pad. So sometimes it's just, you know, catching up to, you know, within the last decade of, technology or, or adopters, but then it's a lot. So a lot of it at this stage, just three years in is collecting a lot of data, watching for trends and things like that. And then, and then looking for, for some of those, those combinations that, that can be, but no. Uh, yeah. So we have to slow ourselves down a little bit on, on some of that. Honestly, I'd like to do, I'd like to do more. I'd love to write a little logistics. We were talking about the, you know, the, how the, auto glass and the, and the dumpsters are kind of little logistics business. I'd love to like write a little logistics routing package for those kinds of size of businesses that don't need UPS level logistics routing. And there's, and there's a few software packages out there that we've evaluated and maybe we'll adopt one of them and, and see, maybe they're good enough. But yeah. So yeah. that's kind of what it means for us. It's, yeah. It's nice. kind of bringing out my, have to do it the same way it's always been done. We want to try to build off the good base. We try to say we want to honor the principles by which the the sellers created the business, doing doing a good job for customers and like that. But understanding that hey, the world does change. Some parts of it do, and we need to these businesses need to adapt. We're trying to reset the the timeline. I think most of the sellers that they created the business with a long term you know view in mind, but then as they approached retirement or thinking about doing something else. They started probably making shorter term decisions. So yeah. they didn't reinvest in new equipment. They didn't hire or rehire. We're trying to now say, Hey, what if this thing had a 10, 20 year, you know, history in front of it? What kind of decisions would you make now? Um, and you might adopt some, you might actually adopt some new technology because, Hey, if we're going to be around, we're, yeah, it's going to suck that first year to learn the new system, but it's going to make life better for the next decade. Let's do it. Yeah. You know, the, it's funny that you say that because I, I was telling uh, a group of students over at Butler that it's unbelievable the the opportunity you have for for some of these retiring business owners to come in and and do some of the things that that are just to just to bring it into the the current day and yeah, yeah. oh my gosh what a what a it's great that you're doing that and at, because you know without doing it you know a lot of these business owners would just evaporate I'm absolutely a hundred percent certain. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that, that's it. When I talk to economic development folks and things like that, I'm always saying like, look, your small businesses, everybody says they love small business and how huge part of our economy it is. But when these businesses shut down, like it doesn't make the paper, right? Like it's not 4,000 jobs getting cut all at once. 
Um, they <laughs> dribble and drab, and, you know, and they don't, they, even the business itself doesn't like shut down and 20 people get fired. It's just like, Oh, Sally quit. So we won't, yeah, I will just, you know, right. we won't hire back to that. And then uh, I'm just going to, the owner's just like, I'm going to stop working on Fridays in the summer. And then they never work on Fridays. And then just do a little bit less business. And, right. you know, until eventually there's like three people hanging out and yeah, they just kind of call it quit. Yeah. They're, and they're they all retired. Yeah. They're, they're dead. They just don't know it, man. Yeah. But it, it has an impact on our communities. I mean, you know, totally in all the ways that small businesses do that, but it just doesn't, it's a slow burn, but it's going to come. There's a wave. I mean, I say baby boomers, you know, they impact healthcare that and, and everything and small business ownership isn't, um, yeah. you know, immune from that. You probably know that that's better than I. Well, yeah, but, but at the same time, I mean, it, the viability of, of, of communities and, you know, the small business world, that's what makes the world go around. And, and, you know, it's, it is a big deal. And, and to, to see that you guys are doing that you're aligned in that, that same mission that we are. I mean, that it is so important that, that these businesses transition to new owners in order to, to protect the viability of those respective communities and, and, you know, future entrepreneurs. So yeah, man, I'm with you on that. Yeah. So one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, you have, you guys have a pretty robust development, you know, as, as far as looking at deals. You know, what are, when you, mm-hmm. when you look at these deals, what are, what immediately says, yep, that's a no for me. You know, what, what are the business owners doing or mm-hmm. not doing that just, it, it, it's an automatic no. Yeah. There's probably, uh, there's probably one thing that isn't really a function of the particular owner. It's like, if their gross margin is just too thin then, and that just might be the nature of the type of business that you're there in, but that just makes it a difficult acquisition for anybody that financially motivated. So I mean, no bones about it. I'm a financially motivated investor. I got a decent chunk of my money in, in this fund and for my other investors as well. I mean, we want to do good work too, but we we're trying to create some wealth, generational wealth here for, for ourselves. And that may just be a nature of the business. As far as like more of what's in the control of the, of the business owner is the, the number one decision we have to make is, is this at this size of business, is this really a business or is it just some dude's job? with like 10 people hanging around him that help. And again, I, I hope I'm at least decent at, at identifying that because I, I was in that uh, this place before myself I and mean, trying to come out of it. Oh man, there was a business I was super fascinated about made a really niche um, OEM piece of equipment. They also sold it aftermarket and just, I mean, super niche, which I love. I got no problem with like, and they, because it was in a niche, they could charge super high margins but it was literally like a 22 step manufacturing process had everything from, you know, high end CNC machines to, they were doing anodizing in like a slow cookers because it was really small parts and they didn't do much of it. But you know, like, and I think we talked to the owner and, you know, super smart guy, but he was the, I'm like, you were the only person in the world that can understand like these 22 (laughs) steps. And you could like, well, okay, that people, other people do all of those things, but not at the size, you know, he needed 22 things all in such small things. Like, oh, you can't outsource that little bit amount of anodizing that sure. they were doing and, and that, and that kind of thing. It's like, yeah, there's no way that we're going to be able to like for the process, the business process itself. Now, could he simplify it? I don't know. He definitely, I think he was so smart and, and he could do it. So we yeah. were, 
we were passing like yeah. that's that's one that like man i loved own that business margins were good he also was just he had a reputation in that community too so it was a little bit like his brand and if he was out and we can give him a good experience and he can like say hey i'm passing the baton to the next generation and you can you can capture maybe i think 75 percent of that but it can go to zero pretty quickly too if um if the audience, if his audience doesn't move, because the audience was definitely tied to him. It wasn't like to the brand loyalty. Well, and it's um, so funny when, when you, when well, you have that conversation, they're like, well, of course they're going to go, they're going to go with you. And it's like, well, you've been doing business with them for 30 years with you, not with your company, mm-hmm. with you. And you think that, that we're going to be able yeah. to come in here and, and, uh, and replace you. And they're, they're, they're that sticky. Yeah. Yeah. Here you put, you put a few yeah. million dollars yeah, on so- the line. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Which is probably also why they don't want to do a seller's note because they know it's going to drop off uh, um, pretty quickly in in some of those cases. But but at the same time, when you can we can talk to an owner that knows their business and is like, yeah, I haven't really talked to customers in like five years. You know, like Bob's really good at you know he got he's got the East Coast covered or you know Jill she she covers all of our large clients and they love her and you know so you you got to keep those two. You know, you got to keep those two around. Right. Um, and that, that, that's fine. I can work with that. You know, that's, that's still risk in that, but I, that's now getting closer to something. So. I got you. So yeah, that's it. It's, it's determined where, where the real risk is. But uh, yeah. So I don't know. As small business owners, it's, it's kind of the nature of the beast though, right? Like we like to do things our own way and you wouldn't have, or you wouldn't have gotten into being a, a small business owner, but you've got to, you know, sometimes put the brakes on yourself. Um, to not make it all about you and your small business. No, I, I hear you. So, well, tell me about your best acquisition and, and what made it great. Oh, man, I love all my children. You know, don't make me pick a favorite. <laughs> but I don't know. I guess if I had to pick one, I really like the tool and die shop uh, that we bought here in Lafayette. So, uh, Lafayette tool and die, been around like 20 years. Larry, is a guy that started it. He started it when the manufacturer that he was running a tool and die shop for moved a bunch of their operations to Mexico. And he was a smart dude and was like, oh, you're not going to move all this equipment down to Mexico. Are you? No. He's like, I'll buy it for like 10 cents on the dollar. And they still had, they were still keeping some of the work here of the manufacturing work here. So they needed some work. So he turned them into one of his first customers. And then he's got um, about, all, all of Tippecanoe County manufacturers use Lafayette tool and die at least a little bit. So like they're really great as far as like not having customer concentration, but it's just this craftsman's workshop of people that take a lot of pride and value. I mean, Larry's been the guy that I say, we talk about this kind of craftsman business owner that never like me, never really intended to be in business. So every minute that Larry's not at the lathe or running the CNC machine is a minute he doesn't enjoy as much as doing that stuff. So he worked on the business. This is not, these guys don't, you don't get to, you know, over a million in revenue and you're the E-myth, like, you know, you're the baker that can't run a bakery. Right. But so they can do it, but they don't enjoy it. And so they don't spend, you know, a lot of time um, thinking about how to improve the business aspect. They improve their quality. So that one's been a lot of fun because the quality of the work, hasn't been a question. Um, you know, I was like, Hey, if we take care of the team, they'll be around. Larry stuck around. He's dropped back to just a tool maker. Um, he's kind of, you know, he's kind of that craftsman. He now gets to be just that craftsman guy. He kind of oversees everybody else. We hired a, a younger guy in and he's been a big part of training that. So that's been cool to see 
Larry's been able to continue working. Um, not, he's not working 60, 65 hour weeks anymore. He works 35 ish hours a week and he, his wife enjoys that as well. And, and so that, that transition has been a lot of fun, but then we've been able to come in and say, okay, let's look at our pricing. Let's look at our customer base. Let's, you know, what kind of other services might we be able to offer? Again, we've owned that business for, I don't know, 13, 14 months, maybe. So we're, we haven't tried to make any two huge changes, but we're just talking about what, you know, what kind of the base that we could build on. Cause we view that. We said, we, we don't know manufacturing Yeah. in my previous software business. We did some work in the manufacturing sector, but don't really know those businesses super well. And we'd like to, it's a big part of our economy here in Indiana. Um, and so, so, but via our customers, so maybe we'll acquire a small manufacturer product, you know, um, manufacturer here in the future. And we'll get to know that. And they can, we can kind of build off of some of that. Nice. That we learned there. So, since you're out in the marketplace, I mean, what do you, what are you seeing? That's the greatest challenge that's facing all of these small business owners transition or health or when I say health, like health insurance and, and things like that. What, mm-hmm. what, what are you seeing? That's the greatest challenge. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, there's the stuff that everybody talks about. Yeah. The rising cost of health insurance, the difficulty of hiring good people. That's all true. So I don't know. I could just agree with everybody else. Um, I think, but I guess I, from my vantage point, the more unique thing I see is that, yeah, the, the challenge of a small business owner today, I think is, it's always been this way, but the, the challenge today is there are so many options for how to shape your business and how to grow it. Oh, um, so like that, that it's almost the tyranny of choice. Oh, that's a, that's an interesting. I, so I've never heard that. Yeah. So I think some folks just kind of sure. It's like, Oh, I can't figure it out. So I'll, I'll just focus and I'm just going to do it the way I, I've always done it. Right. And I'm not going to talk to, I'm not going to look at any new way of doing, doing my, doing my business. Right. Well, should I outsource this? Should I outsource it locally? Should I outsource it to overseas? Should I add on other services to my business or whatever, you know, whatever it is, technology allows or new business models allow. So some folks just shut down and then other folks are the opposite side. They never get any actual work done because every six months they, they come up with some new thing and about the time they get it working, they quit and <laughs> they move on to the next thing. Cause there's cause right. some, some new salesman is, has hit them up, you know, 18 times and sure. they finally cave in and they're like, yeah, sure. Let's try this. Let's switch CRMs again, you know? Sure. Um, so it's finding that balance and that's, it's a hard, that, it's a hard balance. That's it's probably, a, I think it's harder today. Yeah. That, that's an yeah, interesting one. I, I haven't heard that. I asked that uh, on every, on every episode. That's a, that's an interesting one. That's, that, that's good. I, I didn't, I didn't think of the tyranny of choice. That is, that's, that is something. As you look at these deals, I mean, are you looking at the end in mind, like what they can become? Are you just looking for good deals that are going to provide an earning stream that, that can provide the return for the the 37 partners? Um, I mean, it's both, I think, right. I mean, our model allows us to own these businesses indefinitely. We say when we're looking into evaluate a business or even get into a new, a new sector, like, can we, could we see ourselves owning this thing for 10 years to forever? Right. And so will the, will the business itself, could the business itself be around? Will there still be need for that product or, or service? I say like with our auto glass, like you for all, 
all driving autonomous vehicles in five or 10 years, like they're still going to have windows in them. You're still going to look out. Those windows are probably still going to break. Right. Right. And so, but if some Purdue material science professor comes up with an unbreakable glass, that's actually affordable to put in normal people's cars. Like it'll take 10 years before 90% of the cars on the road, you know, have that new glass in them. Right. And so will this thing, will this thing be around? So yeah, can it be a good business? And what does it look like in 10 plus years is, in the end there, but it, it's also like, can it be a, um, you know, can it be a profit profitable business in, in that, in that way? So, but you know, we'll look at some stuff in some industries that are slowly dying or, you know, at least, you know, kind of just barely holding their own. They're not, they don't, the whole industry doesn't have to be, you know, a growth, a growth sector. A lot of things, you know, don't, don't die as quickly or go all the way to zero in most cases, I mean, some things do, but it's over really long periods of time. So yeah, we just want to be a good business that can cash flow and provide dividend up. That's what we buy the next round of businesses with. And it grows hopefully the value for everyone that's involved with little engine. It's not just for the, not just for the investment partners, but for the employees. I mean, there's more opportunities to, as your business grows, to have new challenges, to earn more income as the business gets more profitable. It can afford to pay people more and um, get more customers and serve more people. So I get it. yeah, it's, I'd say we're, we're, we're not buying it. We're not a venture capital fund. We don't have to, or even a PE fund that, you know, says, Hey, we got to flip up this thing in three years or five years. We have a different model than that, but it does, but it doesn't mean we're not growth oriented. Sure. It comes in a different way. Yeah. So I have a company and we start talking and we, we, we agree on, on price terms and conditions. What, tell me what does the last 30 or last 30 or 60 days before the, the deal's done. And then the first 30 or 60 days after the deal's done, what, what does that look like? Yeah, it's a good, it's a good question. So for us, 60 days is, you know, at the, at 60 days prior to closing, um, we're probably is when we're signing the letter of intent. So, our quickest due diligence process has been 45 days, but I got a buddy that he does turnarounds. Like he'll say stuff from going into bankruptcy. And he's like, Michael, if you haven't uh, met the business owner on a Friday and bought it on a Monday, he's like, you haven't really lived, man. That's a wild and crazy weekend. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to leave that one to you, man. So okay, we're, we don't turn around. We're, we're, we're not trying to save stuff from bankruptcy. We just want good solid businesses and they stalled out a little bit. So yeah, the, the last 60 days uh, before the closing, is basically our, the term of our entire due diligence process, which formally at least, so which starts with a, we have a big long checklist. You know, I think it's, I think it's a little smaller and, and tightened up than what a big private equity firm would be. But we do kind of say, Hey, we, we'd like all this info. We have a bookkeeper that we use that kind of helps us gather um, all that data. And we, we kind of apologize up front and say, it's going to be kind of painful, but it's just get us as much as you can. Right. And, it's a lot in that judgment of, you know, are you working with somebody that's honest and, and trustworthy and just wants to do the thing? I mean, I know I like your, your tagline, you know, you're trying to help business owners maximize the value in their business. And that of course means price, but my experience, business owners value a lot of things about their business, the reputation, it's the relationship they have with their employees. It's the relationship they have with their customers. And so we're saying, Hey, we just need to know this stuff so that we can do, so we can do a good job in protecting all the value that's in this business. And, and so that's really what it's kind of, kind of focused on. So if there's a skeleton in the closet, that's fine. We, 
we do a lot of these. We've seen it before. We've seen people that have personal vehicles in and like, just tell us like, okay, that vehicle is going to go with you. All right. You know, we don't really need that. Do we, do we need that vehicle? Are we going to have to buy another one if you take it? Right. And our, nah, you know, I was the only one that drove it and kind of stuff like that's fine. Okay. Just, just tell us, let us know. So, so yeah, we're back and forth with the seller quite a bit, but we're also like, Hey, selling your business is like having another job, right? Or it can be. And so we say, don't, you know, quit running the business. Like let us do the, as much of the due diligence process, you know, really as we can. Now we obviously need your, your help to know that. And so what, when our kind of team that goes in to um, help with the transition is really from our side, we tell the team, like pretend like we already own this business. Like if we were running it, today like what would we need to know to make to make the decisions that we're that we're doing and we try to learn the processes and the equipment and who the customers are and things like that but again they're small businesses so you know big private equity goes in and they interview the senior management team like sure talk to the owners and maybe one other key employee like a week or two before closing because you just can't tell all the employees until sure. everything's you know kind of all all buttoned up. So then it's after, then it's closing, close on a Friday and then on a Monday show up and tell everybody what's going on. And Hey, here's, we're going to be the, we're going to be the new owners and here's going to be the new manager and whoever the old owner is, is going to be around here for a little while. And you all have jobs, you know, like, uh, cause they've probably heard horror stories and stuff. I'm like, no, we bought, but it's trying to dispel those myths. Like, no, we're not going to just roll you up take all your customers and fire everybody and do that. Like we're buying this because this is a good business because we want to build on top of it. And so now some people just don't like change. Some people don't want to, aren't really looking for new opportunities and that's fine. So, you know, it's fine in a fit going forward. So a lot of the first, the first 30 days of owning the business is just trying to, you know, really assess what we got. So you don't really know a business until you bought it. Right. Um, and so, so when we, I guess at my, my last question is, is, you know, we have a lot of business owner listeners. I mean, what, what, what's the one piece of advice that you would give them that would have the most immediate impact on the value of their company? So, it, so it becomes a, a target for something like, like little engine ventures. Yeah. yeah. Well, I, well, I'd say I, the advice I'd, I'd give them is, um, if everybody followed this advice, I think little engine wouldn't have an opportunity, right? So, um, I'm, I'm banking on that. Not everybody will listen. Uh, not everybody listens to your podcast and not everybody you will put it that. perfectly into <laughs> <laughs> Right. So get the podcast out there. But I say, I, there's so many small businesses, right? But, um, so it is, is go into your business every day and work yourself out of a job and, and how can things be done without you? Right. Um, I say in my businesses, like I've done every job in this place, but I've done it poorly. You, I'll, you can keep your job. If you can do it better, this slice of the thing that I'm giving to you better than me. Right. Like that's my, maybe it's right. too low of a bar, but that's yeah. often been my bar. Um, and so if you can have that kind of mentality, then you've got a business that you could sell because you can step away from it. Now, you can do other things to maximize the price. Um, you can do other things to make the transition faster or slower. But if you're just looking like, I think small business owners, good small business owners value options. And that's where like, I thought I was um, changing Delmar so that I could sell it. 
the changes I needed to make to sell it made it a better business so that I then didn't have to sell it. Right. Um, and I had options. I could sell it or I could choose not to, you don't want to be a, a forced seller, right? You don't want to, um, whatever the reasons are. Well, I mean, a lot of times it's health issues, right? Like you just can't get to, you get to a point where you just can't physically do the work anymore. Um, what it takes. And then, you know, you, you're, you're kind of, you're kind of stuck because for, for me, it wasn't health. It was just, well, it was my, it was my mental health. Uh, we're trying to save my marriage or whatever, right? Like sure. with young kids, this business that, you know, required 70 hours a week of me was like, I gotta, I gotta change this or I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make it. And so thankfully I had some time and a very patient life. And, um, and so I could make those changes. But if something happened suddenly, you, you want to be in a position where you can, you can step away. Um, yeah. but because then you don't have to, it's actually a really good business. Like more, more business owners actually shouldn't have to sell their businesses. Um, you know, it's just, wouldn't you that, can get it to where the level is the way you like it. Yeah. Wouldn't that be great? It put us all out of work and we, we find other things to do though. Sure. Ed, right. No, absolutely. And, and that, and I guess part B of my last question is, is are you seeing business owners that are prepared for sale or is this just a, a total, you know, smack in the head of, Oh my gosh, I had no idea that this was, this is the way this was going yeah. to work. Um, yeah, I mean, it's probably a self-selecting process that <laughs> I mostly that aren't, that aren't prepared. Right. right. Um, the folks that, that are prepared or they've got a they've got a succession plan in place, right They're They're converting to, I, you know, I've, I've met, met good friends with folks that, you know, I've converted to an ESOP or, um, they've passed it down to, you know, a, one or two key employees. Um, or they've, they've successfully, you know, been acquired by a, by a strategic competitor in the, in the space, but they groomed that relationship, you know, for 10 years. Um, and, and they, and it went well for, went well for everybody. So again, we're, we're not looking for dumpsters fires, but it's early on here. We're, um, we're, we're looking for folks that, you know, sort of haven't planned, haven't yeah. planned ahead and they're like, but I gotta be done. And can, can you, what can you do, do with this, Michael? So yeah. at the same time, I'm also meeting folks that are like 55, 60. And they're like, it is really cool to know you guys exist. I, you know, we, they, they kind of are thinking about selling, but I would say they, they ask, they always, everybody asks the question, like, what are you gonna do with my baby? Right. Like, right. well, you know, we were thinking this or we might do that. And it's really cool when you can get somebody like, yep, I've thought about that, but I, you know, it, it might take five years to do that. And what if it took 10? So I just never did it. Cause I didn't know if I, right. you know, wanted to take that risk. Right. Um, and so it's kind of cool. Cause I know then they're not going to necessarily be upset with me when, when I hopefully succeed with it. Right. Like I don't want them to have, have that regret. They're like, yep, I could have done it. It was the right thing. And Michael told me what he was going to do. And that's awesome. That's great for him. I'm really glad for my employees and they're growing. You know, that's what I'm to say five years out. But sometimes in, in those conversations, I can just, I can just tell, or sometimes they say it. And, but it's just like, yeah, you want to do it. Don't you? Like this idea that I said might come in and like, you still want to give it a shot and you'll kind of regret it. If you don't, if you didn't give it a shot. And so like, I'm like, okay, we're not going to buy your business, man. Like you need to go try it. If it, if it works great, I I just drove the price up, but it's a more valuable business. So I should be willing to pay more for it. Right. In five years when that thing works. Um, and if it doesn't work, I, you know, no, no ill will here, but if it doesn't work, as long as you don't destroy the business, I, I will I'm still, your still guy. be interested. <laughs> right. right? <laughs> yeah. So your guy, I'm still your guy either way. Like I with a long, it's, 
having a long view of things like gives me so many options. I don't have to try to get them to sell to me tomorrow. I can say, all right, come let's, let's talk once a year. Let's see how things are going. And maybe three, four or five years and like kind of maybe just informally, but there, I would love it if there's a bunch of business owners in central Indiana that are like, yeah, whenever I get ready to, to give this thing up, like I'll just call up those little engine guys and, you know, right. and we'll see what we can do. Right. Yeah. Well, I, we're kind of built in as a succession plan. So yeah. Well, I have, a, I, I have a feeling you're not going anywhere. No, I hope not. Yeah. So what's the best way we can connect with you? Sure. Um, you already mentioned the website, LED.VC uh, is a great way to, if you want to hear more of my ramblings, but in word form, <laughs> written form, then you can, you can go there. Daryl writes a bunch. He's the better, he's the better writer. His blog posts are much longer and, and more thought out than mine are. So you can uh, read his stuff there. We're both also on Twitter. So LEV underscore capital is the official company account, but the fun stuff happens at my Twitter handle is just my first and last name. So M I K E L B E R G E R on Twitter. So well, active on there. Well, awesome. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, uh, for seriously, how generous you you've been with your time and experience and, and, and really what you're doing with small businesses. I mean, I, it is like we say here in our practice, I mean, we serve the underserved we're, we're below the investment bankers mm-hmm. and we're, and, yep. and it's such a, a need to transition these business owners. So having a source like you and doing the things you're doing, I mean, it, it, it's awesome to visit with you. So, so thank you so much for your time. Awesome. Thank you, man. Thanks for having me on. If there's ever anything I can do to help you, let me know. And same thing for your listeners. You got it. Cheers. This was another episode of the Defenders of Business Value Podcast. For more episodes packed with strategies to increase the value of your business, visit DefendersOfBusinessValue.com for show notes, transcripts, and free tools to start you on your journey. Subscribe now so you don't miss any future episodes.